Again, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 in just a moment. This is the third of the five sermons uh, planned in which we uh, define and attempt to uh, explain uh, what we call the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. That is five things that were recovered, uh, five things that uh, were confessed and I believe uh, still should be confessed among those who can think of themselves as uh, evangelical, uh, biblical Christians. Now, I have ordered these in a, a particular way. Uh, part of it is uh, in that I want to make a statement uh, that is inclusive of all five of the solas. And so it makes somewhat of a, a logical sequence for me to say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. You can see how that kind of flows, and I think that's a, uh, a good way of stating and holding them together. Now, sometimes I, I step back and I ask myself uh, the question, which is the most important of the five solas? Which is the most essential? And which, if, if I told you to pick one, I would tell you that you were wrong, and I would argue for one of the other solas. Just so you know, if we get into this uh, discussion after church today, you will be wrong. Just always remember that. But I guess part of it is due to the order and the way I've phrased the whole series. But I think we could make the case that the, the central feature, the, the, the thing that is, that is uh, the, the whole system of affirmations or confessions, the thing that it all points to is the reality of Christ alone. That, that Now, I could step back and say, well, yeah, that's true. Our, our faith must be in the unique Son of God, the Savior of the world. But I could probably also step back and say that it's all done what? For God's glory alone. And I think that's a very important concept and doctrine as well as we, as we look at life and we try to examine the, the challenges both personally and then cosmically, corporately. What can we say that's most fundamental? Well, that all things exist, all things occur for the sake of God's glory alone. Our salvation is for the glory of God. And so uh, all of them are, are very important. All of them have an intrinsic way of informing upon uh, the other. Uh, and today we emphasize uh, rightly uh, the uniqueness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that indeed we are saved by God's grace through the exercise of faith in Christ alone. Now, I have said very little in this, uh, uh, I guess, repetition of the series. I've said very little in terms of uh, the history of the Reformation. Uh, in past years, we've, we've uh, placed a, a good bit of emphasis on how the Reformation came to be and why it was so necessary and uh, why if, or the reality that if uh, men such as Luther had not uh, arisen in the course of history and in the church that the gospel would have been forever lost to us, that indeed uh, it was obscured by the church that was uh, in existence in Luther's day. And I've been re reading a little book that the late R.C. Sproul wrote. Uh, he wrote it before he died, okay, just so you picked up on that. But uh, uh, he, he could write a better book now, I'm sure. But, uh, but at any rate, we, we have a book about Luther and the Reformation. It's an excellent little book, probably 100 pages long, a little paperback. But he notes in there, and I, thought, I found this really intriguing, that it seems like about every five years, 
Luther hit a wall. In fact, you, you could go back, and, and we've talked about this in the past. In 1505, while traveling home from school, he is caught in a lightning storm. And he fears for his life. And he cries out, St. Anne, save me. And he makes the pledge, which he makes good on, that if you will deliver me from this immediate peril of the lightning storm, I'll become a monk. And much to the chagrin of his parents, he did. And as he reflected in later years, if anybody could have ever been saved by their monkery, it would have been me. That, that he was a diligent, a fastidious monk. He observed everything and more. And yet, he could come to know peace of mind, to know satisfaction for his soul. And then in 1510, about five years later, he makes a pilgrimage uh, to Rome. One of the ways that the uh, church of that day oppressed people was they emphasized the value of making pilgrimages to holy places, to holy sites. So he goes to Rome. And he is absolutely appalled and incensed by the debauchery, by the immorality, by the, just the, the rampant corruption that was on display among the church leadership of that day. He was literally sickened. And so he returns and he arrives eventually in Wittenberg. And in 1515, he has what many refer to as his tower experience. Now, sometimes you hear me somewhat kind of jokingly, but it's a very serious point. You better watch out when you go study the Bible because it'll change you. It'll change your opinions. It will change your worldview. It will change your behavior. It will change your attitude. It, it's, it's, it's incredible what word and spirit does in the life of those who know Christ. And even for those who don't know Christ, he, it is the word of God that's instrumental in bringing us to this place of faith in Christ. Luther happened to be teaching. He was already a scholar, already a doctor. He's, in, he's teaching uh, in the school there in Wittenberg, and he's teaching the book of Romans. And he is perplexed, and he is overwhelmed. And he comes to that statement in the first chapter of the book of Romans where the book of Habakkuk is quote, quoted, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And he is incredibly perplexed by this, and he thought of it in this way, that God is a righteous God, and as a righteous God, he cannot condone a sinner such as myself, a sinner that committed his entire life to supposedly serving this God, a, a sinner that's been so fastidious about doing all of the things that are demanded of monks, and yet I am a miserable wretch and I think that I hate the God of the Bible. But in those days of great anguish of soul, he came to understand that this righteousness that Paul spoke about so eloquently and developed so well for us throughout the book of Romans was a righteousness, it was a status that was granted to sinners who believed in Christ for salvation. It was the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that was given to those who were guilty and they were granted a new identity and a new status before God. And when that reality broke upon his heart and his mind, not only was Maybe very likely in those moments he reborn, but the Reformation was kindled in that moment. The gospel in Luther's day was obscured by all manner of evil. Uh, there, there was the practice of simony, the, the purchase 
of, uh, of church offices for people's own private profit. There was what's called sarsidosalism, uh, which is the idea of the priest being necessary and essential to one's salvation through their dispensing of the sacraments. And so all of these things were utilized to oppress people and deceive them. We've all heard about the, the sale of the indulgences and how uh, the, the little ditty, uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, okay? And so how far removed from any biblical notion of eternity, of salvation, of, of the gospel, how, 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 how do you get to a place to where you're dispensing salvation as uh, a commodity. But that was the church in Luther's day. And I fear while uh, we, we don't really have these uh, mystical priests uh, administering some type of mysterious rites and demanding some type of ob obscure ritual uh, so that we may uh, be found uh, uh, with uh, clean consciousness and pure hands be to receive salvation. I do fear that the modern church has largely lost the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is hidden under all manner of uh, ritual, whether you want to call it decisionism or something along those lines, whether it's some type of mystical experience, uh, some type of ecstatic uh, encounter supposedly with God, whatever it is, we rarely hear the gospel of a resurrected Savior preached in the church today. Oh, we, we have messages about how to do this better and how to feel better about this and all and on these things go. But can we not reflect and apply the words of Jesus himself? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. If Christ and Christ alone be exalted, be proclaimed in our midst, his promise is what? He will draw all men to him. So let's look this morning at the third of the five solas of the Reformation, that is Christ alone. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Pray with me, if you will. Father, once again, our confession, our prayer, our plea, our desire is that we would see Jesus. We would see him as the one in whom we must place our faith, the one that you have sent into this world to reconcile fallen men, women, and boys and girls to yourself. I pray that your spirit would be at work, first of all, within me. That, God, you would give me the unction to speak to this, your people. And, God, that you would so work, that you would so use your word, that you would convict where that is necessary, that you would comfort where that is necessary, that even you would convert where that 
is necessary. Our confession is indeed we are dependent upon you. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began speaking of our salvation is the result of God's grace. That being his disposition to grant favor to those who deserve his wrath. God's grace is not only his disposition, but it is his determination to to choose, to elect, to predestine. And doing that in eternity past, that in the course of history through the proclamation of the word, he draws people to himself so that they may believe, so that they may be saved. And this grace is the very demonstration of God's power. It is the exercise of his power to make us alive to believe uh, the gospel. And having been made alive, we trust, we believe. That, that, that faith being, and the, the word we use sometimes is that of a, a conduit, a, a channel, an, an instrument, a device through which something passes to something else. We think of a, a building like this, and you see all kinds of pipes all over this building. And in those pipes are wires, and those wires conduct electricity so the various things in our building can function. And so uh, the, the value really is not in the conduit so much, and uh, it, it, it's worth worth talking about conduit sometime. It's worth talking about faith. We have talked about faith. But the reality, the, the object of the conduit is to attach us to the very source of life, to the one in whom there is life, to the one in whom the only one there is life. It is to attach us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to attach us to the benefits, to the very source of life from which we were severed in the rebellion of Adam. We lost life in that rebellion, and it is through faith, it is the conduit of faith that we are attached to life itself, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in the text of Hebrews, and you've heard me mention there there are three or four passages that all of us should master. Now, you know what the next thing is. That if you master a passage, you haven't mastered it until it masters you, okay? But we have in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we looked at it a little bit earlier uh, in our uh, Scripture reading, uh, you you have in Colossians 1 and 2, you have in Philippians 2, and here in Hebrews 1, examples in the New Testament of the most profound and the most in-depth statement of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw from Acts 4, yes, indeed, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, that you buried, that God raised from the dead, he is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. It is that Jesus. But in theological terms, it is the Jesus who is uniquely, in a way, distinct from everyone And everything else, he is uniquely the Son of God. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that yes, indeed, verse 1, that God had revealed himself. God revealed himself in the Old Testament. God revealed himself under the Old Covenant. God revealed himself even in creation. God revealed himself through the prophets who spoke and wrote. God revealed himself through the sacrifices and through the various rituals associated with the tabernacle and temple. Their very existence was a revelation of God. Even the course of history, the very providence of God in that which he rose up and that which he destroyed, even things like the Babylonian captivities was a revelation of Almighty God. And so in the past, God spoke in any number of different ways, whether it's actions or activities or dreams or visions. God revealed himself. But there is a now in the last days. And we've talked about that's come up a number of times recently. The last times, beginning with the first advent of the Lord Jesus 
Christ, okay? And so in these last days, the days of the new covenant, God has spoken, and he's spoken to us by son. Jesus Christ is God's full and final statement of himself to us. If we would like to know what God is like, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he is the one in whom we must believe. We must look to him and believe in him as a person for who he is. And I fear too much discussion uh, in churches today about Jesus is discussion of a vain idol created by the vain imaginations of men. It is not the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible. Well, my Jesus wouldn't do that, and my Jesus wouldn't do that. Folks, let me tell you something. You better be sure that the Jesus you're speaking of is the Jesus revealed in the Word of God. Jesus said of himself that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. So we saw in Acts chapter 4, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This Jesus has spoken. This Jesus had, has acted. And, and the reality, as much as God spoke through the prophets under the Old Covenant, and, and he did, the one that they anticipated, the one that they spoke of, is Jesus. Jesus himself said, and it's recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 5, he looked at the Jews and said, you know, you, you search the Scriptures diligently thinking that in them you have eternal life, thinking by your observance of rituals, thinking of your nominal obedience to the law that you have eternal life. But what you fail to see is this word, this inspired and erred infallible word, this word anticipated, gave testimony to me. It was all about me from the very beginning. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, particularly about, about David, the prophet David. We think of David as a king, and he was, but he was also a prophet. And he spoke of Jesus and spoke of him as the one, the holy one, who would not see corruption. The Old Testament prophets saw something unique about the promised Messiah, that he was one who in his death would not be corrupted. And again, how do you keep a human body from corrupting well, the best way I can think of is to raise it from the dead. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. The Apostle Peter, in writing his epistle in chapter 1, spoke of the Old Testament prophets as those who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Speaking of the addressees of the letter, and by extension, I believe, speaking to us, they were speaking in regards to us and the salvation that's come to us through this person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament prophets, they inquired as to the person and the time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted when they spoke, when they wrote of the suffering of Christ and the sub subsequent glories. They were looking forward. They were anticipating. They believed that there was one who was to come who would be the son of David, who would be the rightful king. And while the contemporaries of Jesus' day missed it, one who would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And so this one who has spoken, the, the son, the, the unique son, is indeed the appointed heir. Now we see in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1 and also in Colossians 1.15, the Greek word protokos, firstborn. Now this is where a great number of, of individuals and movements have gone off the rails firstborn, and, and, and they'll, they'll, they will attach the, or they will develop the idea that Jesus is of the created order, that, that, that he indeed was uh, born 
originally and initially uh, when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that would be an era. Uh, the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses make that era, that Jesus is, in some sense, divine, but he's a, a lesser-created uh, divinity. And so, no, 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 that, that, the protokos is a word that is indicative of the rights that Jesus has as the firstborn, as the monogenes, the uniquely begotten of the Father. Not begotten in time, not begotten just because he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the work of the Holy Spirit, but begotten in eternity past and eternally begotten as uniquely the Son of God. And so he is the heir because of who he is, he is the heir of all things because, again, the writer of Hebrews, as does the, uh, John and Colossians, also speaks as, of Jesus as what? The one through whom the world was created. Jesus was the agent. He was involved. He was active in creation. And again, here in our text, he created the world. And what, what else did he do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he has designed the earth, the creation, the entirety of the cosmos as it is, and he keeps it functional. It, ke it continues to, to work. And just, just kind of a, an, an aside, how is it that there can be anything that we would think of as science or even mathematics? How can there be an order, a predictability? If you do this, that will result. I, I mentioned conduit a, a, a moment ago. How can we know that if we stop up a river and run that river through some things that spin, and those things that spin have, are magnetized, and, and it does something to wire, and, and then you run that wire to Timbuktu, and you flip a switch, lights will turn on. That's because there's an order to creation, and that order was put in place by Jesus himself. There's a predictability as to how things work. And so here we see he's the heir, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, and we also see that he is the redeemer. After he made purification for sins, he sat down. And so as the son, he was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he is truly and he is uniquely God and the language here again go back to um, verse 3 of our text the first thing it says he is the radiance of the glory of God that's an interesting word the, the Greek is apogsma and uh, kind of an unusual word I'm not real familiar with it I, it's, but and there's a question among those that define these words and interpret these words is it a word that describes Radiance, which would mean it would be something that would emanate from Christ himself. Is it a word that describes uh, the, the uh, reflection, that is, that Jesus, being the perfect man that he is, and uniquely God, reflects the glory of God? Or does he refract the light of God? Does he bring God into focus? It's interesting. I'll just leave you to think about it because I think it's all three, actually. But, but certainly, as God, he radiates. So he is a, a source of the light in the world. He is certainly reflective of the light of the Heavenly Father. And he, as we said uh, a moment ago, as I believe it was Heath that, that prayed, he, when Jesus told the, the disciples, if you want to see the Father, just look at me. And so there's a way that, that the, the light of the Heavenly Father is refracted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see with precision with excellence, with clarity, who God is in this one who is the, the radiance of the glory of God, the, the visible glory of the essential nature of Almighty God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that, that word exact imprint is the word from which we get character. Okay, karatos in, in, in the Greek. And it was used sometimes to describe uh, what was done when you took something like a metal die 
and put an imprint in clay or wax, okay? Uh, whether it was sealing a document uh, with a signet or, or whether it was doing something in terms of art, but by making a permanent, indelible impression upon something. And so there's a sense to where Jesus Christ is the perfect, unchangeable, indelible impression of God himself, okay? And, and so uh, he is exactly all that God is. And notice in the word here is nature, hypostasis, in his essential being, or nature is a good word, Jesus Christ is fully God. He has all of the essential qualities, all of the attributes of God, okay? He is omniscient, knows everything. He is omnipotent. He has all power. And even while being cuddled in his mother's arms there in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he was the omnipresent God who was sustaining all things by the word of his power. Now, folks, if I don't stretch you just a little bit, it should. You're not thinking about it. But he is, the, the presentation here, the confession here, consistent with other passages, is that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the fullest and the clearest testimony uh, to who God is. And so he is one uh, who, of whom John wrote, we, we be, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we what? We beheld. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And as Jesus prepared to go to the cross in John 17, he prayed this, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of those disciples, and I think by extension us, whom you've given me. There we see again, you've, give, you've given me a people, and I've come into the world to save the people that you've given me. Maybe, may we be, excuse me, may, may they be with me where I am to see my glory. The glory that you've given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. When Paul writes of this in Philippians 2, he speaks of something along the lines of Jesus humbled himself. He, he laid aside his glory. He didn't lay aside his divinity. But the, the people that saw Jesus walking the streets of Palestine, for the most part, really didn't recognize him as God because he looked like a man. And he was a man, okay? He was fully man. But yet, at the same time, he was in full possession of all of the attributes of God. You would, if, you'd have met, if you went home and said, hey, I met this guy Jesus on the street there. He was really cool. You, you would not have gone home and said, and he was glorious. While he was glorious, but you did not have the eyes to see it. But here, and, and, and this gets at what I believe our hope is. It gets at what eternity is. That we, get this, listen, we shall revel in the unrestrained and unbridled glory of God for all of eternity. That's it. That's all you need. That, 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 that's it, folks. Don't worry about streets of gold. Don't, don't worry about mansions. Don't, don't, don't worry about whatever it is. It's Jesus. And we will be enthralled by his glory, the finitude and the sinfulness of our identities right now will be stripped away. We shall see him as he is because we shall be like him. And we shall revel and we shall rejoice in the fullness of the revelation of all the great glory of God. Jesus has prayed that for us. And guess what? His prayers are always answered. And so that is our hope. And so, Jesus is exactly the very imprint of all that God is. I mentioned a minute ago something of, of ancient heresies uh, uh, kind of replicated in the Jehovah's Witness movement uh, today. And I, I remember being at a meeting 20, 25 years ago. And a very prominent writer, theologian, leader in Southern Baptist Convention was at a, a larger meeting. In fact, it was kind of his birthday party. Uh, the man's name was Herschel Hobbes, and he wrote 
widely, frequently. And uh, he was about 85 years old, and he was kind of fully enjoying, uh, you know, a bunch of folks, you know, reveling in, in his birthday. But he made the comment that, that Baptists have never been a creedal people, uh, that we don't do creeds, we don't do confessions. And of course, he was wrong, first of all, uh, as he was, unfortunately, about a great number of things over the years. But um, he, he knows the truth now. But in making that, that statement, he neglected, and, and I think Baptists, for my lifetime at least, have neglected the importance of what was accomplished in the early creeds of the church by correcting uh, the eras of different movements that arose during those first few centuries of the history of the church. And one of the things that was truly nailed down in what we call the Nicene Creed, is this statement, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That's a mouthful. But that is a very concise way of stating who Jesus is. And just as a I guess in my cynical way, uh, Brother Hobbes uh, wouldn't have written what he wrote in his commentary on the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message in regards to the Trinity that basically is a statement that is modalism, that, that God just appears through history in various modes, which is an era. God appears throughout history in three distinct persons who are one in essence. If Dr. Hobbes had read the Nicene Creed and studied it and studied these texts, he would have not have made such a terribly misleading statement there. And so we need things like that. We need church history. We need that which came from the Reformation to help us rightly understand what the Word of God means in presenting to us the unique Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so he is this exact imprint. And then verse 3, he is the effective sacrifice. Thousands and thousands, even millions of sacrifices were made under the Old Covenant. And yet they were inadequate to actually save. It is only through the once and for all offering of the unique Son of God there at the cross of Calvary that sins can be purified. Notice there uh, in verse 3, after making purification for sins. And notice what he did after he made that purification. And the Greek word is uh, catharsis. We get the English word catharsis from that, a cleansing. Jesus was the only one that could ultimately cleanse from our sins. He did it with the once and for all sacrifice of his life at Calvary. And I love this part. And he sat down. I'm done. As I've told you so many times before, when he proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. It was finished. The atoning work necessary for the salvation of his people was finished because he was indeed the once and for all, the effective sacrifice. He is the one who has propitiated the very wrath of God. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 of this very same book goes on to spell out how these, these bulls and these, these lambs, they kept on being sacrificed, but they could not atone for sin. But Jesus Christ, having once and for all entered the heavenly holy of holies, offering himself, has cleansed us from our sins. And now, having sat down, he is the one seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is there to intercede, we're told. He is our great interceder. I've told you before, you know, we get all pompous when we deal with Catholics you know, about their priesthood and all this. Well, I don't need a priest. Yeah, you do. You better be glad you got one. And he's a perfect one. And his name is Jesus. And he sure doesn't make excuse for your sin. And he sure doesn't make atonement for your sin by looking at your goodness. He points to his perfect sacrifice, to his perfect righteousness, and says they are no longer guilty. 
and they are righteous because of what I've done for them at Calvary. And so he intercedes. He awaits the day of his return. But while he's waiting, make no mistake about it, he's the sovereign Lord. He is ruling and reigning. And he rules and reigns quite well. That he is weaving a tapestry in the course of history that will reach the ultimate moment of the day of his return when indeed he will make all things right. Jesus, the one in whom we must place our faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews, I'm going to to string some pearls together really quickly just to kind of help you see some some things from the balance of the book of Hebrews. The point of the book of Hebrews is, is simply Jesus is infinitely superior to everything that came and everyone that came before him. That, 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 that in his person and his work, he has surpassed all that preceded. And, and the first point he makes there in verse 5, he's, he's superior to the angels. That, that there's no one else. God never spoke of and to the angels like he's spoken of his son. And he goes on in chapter 3, beginning verse 6, that Jesus is superior to the great man Moses. That, yes, Moses was great. He was faithful as a servant. But Jesus is faithful as a son. And that this Jesus is greater than all of the high priest that ever came before him. Turn to chapter 4 for just a moment. Let me... I want you to look at something quite quickly. Like I said, we're just kind of stringing some things together because I want you to see how who Jesus is is intrinsic to what he has done, and both of those are integral to what it means for us. Now, again, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. I'll remind you, his name is Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was a man. He understands what it's like to live in a fallen world. But one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Particularly as it pertains to the Day of Atonement the priests were incredibly sober, literally sober, but they were incredibly sober, metaphorically speaking, as they entered because they did not know that they would ever exit the Holy of Holies. They were fearful that the holy wrath of God would break out against them were they to be inadequate in their offering of that sacrifice. And now Jesus, because he has once for all sprinkled his blood on that mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies and has pronounced it is finished. We don't don't approach with the fear and trembling of those that went before us. We approach with confidence, knowing that as we approach the very throne of God, that we find mercy and grace because of what Jesus has done for us. So he is a superior to all the high priests that came before him. No matter how good they were, he is better. And here's why. You, you can write, th- write these down if you want to because they're good. And we're going to be quick, okay? Because he was of the better order, chapter 5, verse 6, he was the order of Melchizedek, okay? Superior order. He, was, he united the office of priest and king and prophet, according to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. He mediates a better covenant, better than the old covenant. We, I get into these discussions quite often. About, well, why is the new covenant better? And I, I usually go down the track of this is the danger of the health and wealth. They confuse the covenants and they make claims that are things that are associated with the old covenant and are not part of the new covenant. But I want you to understand this. The new covenant is superior because the new covenant was put into place by a better mediator. It has a better sacrifice. It has better privileges. It has more powerful implications because there is a fuller presence of God in our midst here today than there ever 
was in the temple or tabernacle under the old covenant. We have greater personal power. We have the law written on our heart that we are a more influential kingdom because we have been internally transformed by the reality of the law upon our heart that is our privilege under this new covenant, making us a far more distinct kingdom. You know, if you walked around Old Testament Israel, you would be shocked at the immorality, at all of the, the evil that was just all over the theocratic kingdom. You, you really couldn't tell that these were uniquely the people of God. Now, get this. Get this. We're often told by the research institutes and the opinion polls, well, Christians are no different than anybody else. They do the same things. Uh, they're homosexuals. They have abortions. They get divorced. You go down the laundry list. They're the same thing. But you better be careful how they're defined, Christian. Because I'll guarantee you this. Those that are genuinely converted, those that have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those whose faith is put into practice on a daily basis of going to the Word of God, of praying to that God, of participating in the life of a church, their lives are distinctly different than everybody else. Guarantee it. Promise you. It's different. So don't believe the polls when, you know, ah, they're just, you know, there's, they're, they're, no, we're not. Because the law is, this superior covenant is the law written upon our heart. He mediates a better covenant. And here's the thing as our priest, he lives forever. You know, the terrible, terrible thing about preacher boys is they die and pass off the scene, even when you get a good one. Same thing with priests. You get a good one, they die and pass off the scene. Guess what? Our perfect one will never die and pass off the scene. He doesn't have to deal with his own sin. Chapter 7, verse 27, he's offered this sacrifice in the true tabernacle, and that sacrifice is and was effective in delivering us to salvation. Therefore, quickly again, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. One of my dad's favorite phrases. Pay attention. Get your mind on your business. Pay attention. Pay attention to this revelation of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond pay attention, look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I sat in our children's Sunday school class this morning. Miss Tiffany uh, taught our children. And I have to tip, tip, your, tip my hat to you. Explain apostasy to children. Okay? But here's, here's the warning right here. To, to the community, take care. And the example is don't be like the wilderness generation. They left Egypt, but they never arrived. Let that be a warning to you. Let that be a warning to you. Think seriously. Take care. Pay attention. Because it's dangerous out there. Strive to enter his rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. Here's the thing. Everything that lives strives. Everything that lives struggles. It struggles to continue to live. That's the reality of the spiritual life as much as it's the physical, struggle of the physical life. Leave behind the elementary teachings. Enter the holy places with confidence. Draw near. Let us hold fast our great confession. Let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. Even more so, as the day draws near, what? You know where this is, what this is. Not neglecting the assembling, the gathering of ourselves together. Why? Because we just need to do these rituals. And, you know, I just, I, you, know you, just, you just need to be in church because, you know, if you're, if you're not in church, you're going to be doing something fun. I don't want you to do anything fun. You've got to be miserable to get in heaven. Because it's a discouraging world. And we need to pay attention. And we need to take care. And we need to be sure that our faith is resting in this one unique person, the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is to him that we're looking to as the author and finisher of our faith. The writer goes on to tell us, 
chapter 10. If we go on sinning after having the knowledge of the truth, what else is there? If the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God is not enough, what would be? Again, pay attention. Now, he says this to us. He says, recall, remember. I say to you gathered here today, don't throw away your confidence. That I, I am confident of better things for you because you have what? You have placed your faith in the eternal Son of God. You see that great example in, in Hebrews 11 of the faithful. And here's the thing. Here's the upshot of the faithful. They didn't fully appreciate and receive everything that was promised. This life, yes, you can be fully saved and you can have the full, full sense of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is not all there is. And we live in this world by faith. We, we, we even see the reality of our own salvation through the dull lens of a window. It, we, 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 we see it smudged through the lens of our own sinful lives. And so we must always be careful to focus our attention on that which radiates the greatness of God himself. Jesus Christ our one and only Savior. If I look to myself, and I have to sometimes, I despair. I really do. Even after trying to do this for 50 years, I still see sin. I still see the evidence of my own depravity. You know what that forces me to do? Look to Him. Look it to the one who, if He's lifted up, He will draw all men to Him. As we're told in the conversion of the great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, as he heard this sermon preached from Isaiah 45, Look to me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be saved. Look unto Jesus, Christ alone, the one and only effective sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this testimony of yourself, to yourself, given for our good. God, would we see you as the one who is indeed high and lifted up, the one who indeed rules and reigns, the one who has sat down because you have made the sacrifice through which we are saved. As we look at our world, we look at ourselves. We are dismayed, we're discouraged, we're distressed. And that's why we must fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who is indeed the author and the perfecter, the accomplisher of our faith. May we see you as high and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.